Well, sometimes you have to go a long way to end up back where you started, uh, which literally happened to me this week. Uh, but, <laughs> but metaphorically, uh, a guy named G.K. Chesterton in a book called Orthodoxy uh, says, you know, there's this fiction book I've always wanted to write, but I'm too lazy. And so I'm just going to give you the, the plot right now. Um, it's about an Englishman who set sail from England in search of new lands and adventure and gets lost. And after days at sea, he somehow gets turned around and ends up on the same shore he just left. But he thinks he's discovered an exotic land. And so he has all the benefits of discovering a new place, and he doesn't know it yet, but all the benefits of coming home. And so he goes wandering deep into the country and ends up in his hometown, which he doesn't recognize, and plants a flag right in the center of the square in his name and in the name of England. And as people come out to figure out what exactly is going on, he tries to communicate with these savages <laughs> with large hand signs to tell them where he's come from and what, what he's doing there. And then he feels really foolish to realize that he has discovered something that's already been discovered. And uh, Chesterton says, the reason I bring that up is that when it comes to Christianity, that's been my experience. Uh, I thought I was discovering something uh, and being original and unique and coming up with new thoughts, and I ended up arriving at some very old beliefs and some very old thoughts. I am the man who, with utmost daring, discovered that which had been discovered before. And sometimes you go a long way and you discover that you're back where you started. That's something that I think has happened for a lot of us when it comes to what it is we believe about Jesus and Christianity. Uh, and I don't know about you, I, just, I think that's been kind of my story as I've sort of walked away from what my, I don't know, parents believed maybe and what I believed when I was a kid and then sort of found faith for me. And it's kind of this constant process of discovering what, what I believe that didn't really make sense and, and what I believe that does make sense. And little by little I find that I'm not finding new ideas, I'm finding old ideas. Um, I think for some of us that's still kind of a process, and the word deconstructing is out there a lot in the world, uh, where we try to figure out what, what's bad about what we believe and what's good about what we believe, and we're trying not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, um, and we don't want to reinvent the wheel when it comes to Christianity. But it's this interesting process of kind of discovering that you're home, I think. That's what, what it's like for me, anyway, when it comes to finding Jesus. Repentance is like that a lot. Uh, when you realize that you're not the person that you thought you were or not the person you wanted to be or that actually you've been doing something wrong for a long time and it's time to change your life. And that feels really hard and you turn around and you think there's this huge distance that you have to travel. Um, but the message of the gospel is that actually you're, you're really just turning back at, to a place that's it's really a lot like home. Um, Jonah in this book has kind of discovered this, I think. And when you read Jonah, you, you just sort of keep seeing him ending up in exactly the same place he used to be. Uh, it, it's sort of this constant process of he never really seems to make it very far. And just to remind you of where we've been in the story, Jonah in the beginning gets this command from God to go somewhere. He goes the opposite direction. He sails across the Mediterranean, uh, ends up drowning, gets swallowed, ends up back where he was, unswallowed, uh, and now has exactly the same mission that he had before, has to go in exactly the same place that he had to go before. He, he's run as far and as fast from God as he possibly could, from everything he always believed, from everything he always knew to be true, and he found that he couldn't escape it. And here we are back in chapter 3. So if you would, turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing in our series, In Spite of Myself. And we'll be at Jonah 3.1. 
And this is the, yeah, a really fun thing, or really hard thing that happens in the story, depending on how you look at it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, three days' walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth. They shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them. He did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Only one thing matters. Hell awaits you. That's what the sign said as I walked across a particular college campus near the philosophy and religion buildings. There were picketers in the name of the Lord. And I saw the sign, and my immediate reaction was, I can think of at least one other thing that matters. <laughs> I've just saltiness just immediately erupted in me. And I got to tell you, at, at first it felt like a joke, and then little by little I just grew more and more and more offended on so many different levels. Uh, one, if you're going to boil down the message of Christianity to a single sentence, and you don't need the name of Jesus... It might be a bad sentence. <clears throat> Two, if you happen to be on a college campus near the philosophy and religion buildings, you might be near some people who may be pagans and maybe going to hell. But they've read some good books and they might be open to a debate on the subject that a, a single bumper sticker kind of slogan may not actually invite conversation. Uh, but the thing that, that drove me the, the craziest, I think, was that these people just didn't care. They did not care whether their message was successful or failed. Now, they didn't care whether people repented and walked away from this evil life, or if they did end up burning in hell. And I was on that campus because I was involved in an evangelism ministry, so we were hoping to actually do the hard work of building relationships and building trust and talking to people who don't necessarily believe in Jesus and talk about things like sin and hell and, and judgment, but also talk about things like God and Jesus and the grace that comes to us through the cross and the fact that you can live a brand new life in light of the resurrection. And it's just so hard to look at people who didn't care about the very people I was trying to save from this miserable future. They were happy just sort of doing the bare minimum uh, and probably would have thought of that as evangelism, which is a word that means uh, to bring the good news. It didn't seem like there was a lot of good news there. Jonah in this story is like those picketers. He does not care about the people he is preaching to. That's really important. He doesn't care if they all die. Doesn't matter. He's happy with the word of judgment he is preaching and proclaiming. He is walking through the streets of Nineveh, talking about the judgment of God, not with tears and sorrow, but with a smile on his face, because he hates these people. 
And it's important to hear that in part because we won't understand the story otherwise. Uh, Jonah 1 and 2 and Jonah 4 really kind of bring up exactly what's going on in this kind of ugly prophet of God. Someone who seems to be very close to God and yet so very far away from who God is and what God is actually saying. But God has given him the message. That's clear. And Jonah is preaching that message. He may be doing the bare minimum. I think that seems somewhat obvious. Uh, Jonah's sermon is exactly five words long in Hebrew. Uh, (laughs) Forty days more, Nineveh burns. Uh, In English it comes across as eight words. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overturned. He goes only about a day's walk into the city, which is like saying, go to Phoenix, and you make it as far as Anthem, and you're like, you guys are screwed, and then you walk away. doesn't really feel like he's taking this seriously, like he's not, he's not embracing God's call to come and preach to the people of Nineveh. But at the same time, there's no sense in which Jonah is at least being unfaithful. God has at some level told him to go and preach that terrible things are happening in Nineveh, and terrible things are going to happen in Nineveh. And so we have to distinguish the message from the messenger, I think. Uh, Some of us have a lot of trouble with the idea that God um, talks about judgment in the Bible. And the reason I think we have the most trouble with God talking about judgment in the Bible is we tend to hear that message from people who don't care about the people who will be judged. The people who love the message of judgment are people who are thrilled that those sinners out there will be destroyed. Which is a terrible way to read the Bible and a terrible way to read the words of Jesus. But it is true that there is a lot in the Bible about sin, a lot in the Bible about judgment, and a lot in the Bible about hell. That there are terrible things that happen as a result of terrible things that we do in our lives. And that makes us really uncomfortable. But I want to distinguish what the Bible actually says from the sort of people who like to talk about it. When you read the Bible, most of the time what you'll see is the God who judges is the God who is looking for an excuse to forgive. God who is always looking for opportunities to save people. In Jeremiah, he'll say, look, I'm ready to burn down cities, but I really don't want those cities to burn down. I really want people to turn. In Ezekiel, he'll say, look, I don't want anybody to die. I want everyone to be saved. And later in the New Testament, it'll say, look, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. That's why he keeps waiting to come back. That's why Jesus keeps waiting to come back. He wants people to be saved. That is the goal of of the Bible, and sometimes that message of judgment rings out so loudly that we don't hear that, that it's really God is hoping that we will change our lives and change our minds. But still, I think we're, un- we're uncomfortable with the idea, and the idea that God would judge the people of Assyria feels unfair. And so I think it's worth mentioning that it, it is fair, uh, that uh, if at some level we believe there is an infinite God who knows everything about everyone and is perfectly able to judge, I think it's reasonable to say that that guy would be qualified to judge people. We just might not like the idea. Uh, And most of the people I know who who don't like the idea um, would say something like, you know, they're not not Israel, right? They don't have the story of the people of Israel. They don't know about the God of Israel. It doesn't seem fair. They can't read the scriptures of Israel. This guy just comes in off the street all of a sudden and starts saying, look, you're going to be judged for things you don't necessarily know or understand. That, That doesn't really feel fair to me. And I get that. And I remember sitting with a friend at one point um, over coffee, and he said, there's no way that a loving God could really judge people. No way that a loving God could really judge people. And I thought about it, as you do, and it kind of, you, it's, uh, you sort of stew on things. And I was thinking about a friend um, who's a really wise theologian, and he says, well, if God can't ever object to you, then how can you tell the difference between you and God? It's impossible for God to object to you. What's the difference between you and God? 
And for that matter, let's say that a friend objects to you because you've done something wrong. How can they, who can they cry out to? What's the, I mean, you're kind of deciding on, on right and wrong if we really relativize it like that. And it's been my experience most of the time that people who really don't like the idea that there is a judgment day coming, that there is, in fact, accountability for our actions, uh, most of those people in my life tend to be middle class to upper middle class, wealthy. They tend to be from first world countries, powerful. And they tend to be white. It's just the truth. And it's been my experience that when I chat with folks from third world countries, that generally speaking, people who've really had suffering and oppression in their lives, who've dealt with real pain and sorrow, they're really grateful to know that there is a God beyond human justice systems. That there's a God who's watching. That wealthy and powerful people can't get by. That there's no loophole with that God. That there will come a day that everyone stands before God, and this God will treat everyone fairly. Those people are longing for that day because they're not going to get it now. They have no faith in governments. They have no faith in a legal justice system. They're going to do everything they can to scratch out the existence they possibly can, but they believe and they cry out to a God who will save them. And he will save them from people like the Assyrians. So the people of Nineveh, just to give you an idea, are horrible people. Uh, one of the bloodiest histories that we have written down. That's what one of the commentators I read was talking about it this week. And I was going to show you pictures um, of some of the things that they've done, but they're too graphic. And so I just want to tell you, it's not that people who didn't like them wrote terrible things about them. They wrote terrible things about themselves with pride. They were proud of war crimes and atrocities that they had committed. They spent lots of money to carve those war crimes into stone that they then scattered throughout their empire. They made sculptures in bronze, dismembering people and of the skulls of their enemies under the thrones of their kings. They were known for, when they conquered cities, cutting off the heads of their enemies and then making the surviving family members carry the faces of the ones they loved through town. They were known for cutting off the limbs of people this is carved into stone. You can find this. They were proud of this. Cutting off the limbs of people, but leaving one hand so they could ironically shake the hand of the man they were slowly murdering. These are the people that Jonah has been sent to preach to. You understand, maybe, why he didn't want to go. These people make Nazis look reasonable. They make the Khmer Rouge look restrained. That's how horrible these people are. And Jonah, this Jewish prophet, is walking through town. And by the way, they have done this to people in Israel. And is preaching a message of judgment. And that feels right. If you know anything about the Assyrians, the message, 40 days more and Nineveh gets turned upside down. That feels fair. But their reaction is amazing. I, don't, I mean, if you pay attention, Jonah walks through with this eight-word sermon, and they listen. In verse 4, he says the words, in verse 5, the people believe, they're repenting, everyone's wearing sackcloth and ashes. He's only a day across a three-mile trek, and somehow the word has just made it all the way across town, which means that if Jonah keeps going, he's going to find people in sackcloth and ashes. They're already repenting, and they haven't actually heard him, the words from his own mouth yet. This extremely unpersuasive message is massively changing these people's lives. It's as though somebody said, you're going to hell if you keep living this way. And they went, yeah, it seems about right. Yeah, we should probably change our lives. Yeah, this is, 
This is a real problem. Yeah, this is bad. The king in verse 9, right, says we're going to give up the violence and the evil that's in our hands. We're, we're done with this. We change our lives. It is amazing what happens. When I left uh, the campus that day, having seen the sign, it was just sort of very angry, actually. Uh, ended up hanging out with some friends who were also connected to this ministry, and uh, I just started making fun of this because... I was preaching to a choir, and I knew I'd get laughs, and it was fun. And so I was mocking these people and mocking the reality that you think this is going to work. You're standing with a message of judgment, and people are going to, oh, tell me more. I'd like to hear more about the God who's sending me to hell. That sounds great. I would love to hear more about that guy. It's, I mean, like televangelists. Like, can you believe that anyone believes that this actually works? Or people who hand out, like, you know, these are the five steps to get to heaven. And I, I say this, and people are laughing. And then a friend of mine who's been quiet the whole time says, um, you know, I actually came to Christ through a televangelist. It's one of those moments where someone just puts you in your place just immediately, and you go, this is why, this is why you're not arrogant all the time. That's, that would be a good thing to work on. And so it, it just immediately put me in my place, and I said, you know what, man, I just really want to hear that story. And he said, see, here's the thing. I was sitting in my living room, and my apartment was just, just torn up. And I was on the, one of the few pieces of furniture I hadn't sold yet, and I was drunk and drinking. And I don't know if I was asleep or if I woke up, uh, if I'd kind of passed out or whatever. But it was like 3 in the morning, and the TV was on. And there was this televangelist on TV, and he looks right in the camera, and he says, your life is a mess. Yeah. If you keep going this way, you will destroy yourself. There will be hell to pay. You are a sinner. Yeah. You've got to change your life. Yeah. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Pray this prayer. Praise the prayer. My friend became a Christian that day, in that moment, at 3 a.m., drunk in his apartment, and changed his life. Unbelievable. I've never met anyone, by the way, since then, who has come to Christ in that way. But I believe that he came to Christ in that way. And he would tell you that's not the most effective kind of evangelism. He would tell you this is not the best way to do it. He'd tell you the guys on the street corner holding the signs are very unlikely to lead people to the gracious God that we have come to know in Jesus Christ. But, he says, the word of God is powerful. And if you're listening, it will change your life. I think we believe that if you were to talk to people about judgment and hell, their immediate reaction would be to be offended and to stop listening. But that is not what happens in this story. And Jonah is really not trying to bring these people closer to his God. He's thrilled about the message he gets to preach. He may think he's going to die because this is a dangerous place to go talking negatively to people. But what ends up happening is the message sweeps through town and it gets to the king of these people, the guy who's in charge of all the atrocities. And he takes off his royal clothing, and he sits down in ashes, and he puts on sackcloth. And from that humble position, he issues a law, which also sounds an awful lot like a sermon, and it's a much more compelling sermon than the one Jonah gives. Nobody eats or drinks. Nobody puts on regular clothes. We all wear sackcloth and ashes. I'm putting it on the cows. We're putting it on the barnyard animals in our city. We're going to show God just how strongly we repent of all that we've done. Who knows, he says. Who knows? Maybe God will change his mind. Maybe God will forgive us. Maybe, just maybe, God will be gracious. 
Sackcloth and ashes, by the way, are, it's a really common thing in the Bible, and it sounds strange. Um, sackcloth is like burlap, if you've ever felt it, and it's hip now. Uh, but so at weddings, it's around. Uh, it's really, really scratchy. So the idea is when you're, when you're grieving, or when you're miserable, or when you've made horrible life choices, uh, you put on sackcloth on your bare skin. That's what you wear. And you put on ashes. Uh, these things are horribly uncomfortable and dirty, and you'll be miserable. And the idea is that your outside reflects your inside. What's going on inside of you is now visible to everyone. So that it's just really clear, I'm grieving inside and out. My whole person, I am miserable. We're not going to eat or drink, he says. Who knows? Maybe God will change his mind. I talked to a friend um, who was a dairy farmer uh, kind of growing up. Well, actually, his parents were dairy farmers and his grandparents. And I was, what happens if you don't feed a cow for like six hours? He says, oh man, the mooing would be crazy. Like, it would just be so loud. They're going to let you know that they're really, really hungry. And this isn't one cow. This is hundreds, thousands of cattle. This is chickens and goats and sheep. This is, you know, the dogs and the cats in the city, not to mention the people. It says, we're going to cry out to God loudly in verse 8. There'd be this kind of cacophony of animal sound, not to mention the human beings just crying out to God to save them. And the king seems to get, and the people in the town seem to get, something really important. When God says he's going to judge you, when God said, says that horrible things are coming and consequences are coming, there's a chance to repent. Because God doesn't have to warn you. If God wants to kill you, he can just kill you. If God wants to judge you and destroy you, he just wipes you off the map. That God bothers to send someone to tell them means that there's a chance to turn their lives around. Because otherwise, why would he say anything? These people get it. They get it immediately. And it's incredible. Forty days they have to change their lives. Biblically speaking, that's plenty of time to completely turn your life around. That's exactly what happens with God and Jonah, or with God and Noah, when the whole world changes dramatically. That's exactly what happens for the people of Israel. Plenty of time to repent and become a completely new people. And that's what happens in this story. And it makes you look at Jonah and think, or, yeah, Jonah, and think, why exactly are you not getting this? Are you not listening to your own words? Because everybody else in the story seems to be doing better than him. The pagans get it quicker than the prophets. The horrible sinners get it much faster than the religious and the righteous. It, there's something about how quickly his enemies quickly bow down and beg God for forgiveness that makes you say, why did Jonah have to get swallowed by a fish? Why was it three days in the fish? You still smell of whale vomit. How do you feel superior in this moment? Where does the judgmental attitude come from? And you remember some of the words of Jesus, who will actually use this story and say things like, the Ninevites would have gotten this before you guys. I don't get it. Someday there will be a moment when you will get the sign of Jonah, and you'll start to realize who I am and what exactly is going on. Jesus will say things like, don't judge, which doesn't mean never judge people. What he'll say is, don't judge because you will be judged, and the measure you give is the measure you get. There will be a day that the standard you're holding other people to is the standard you will be held to. Do you not understand that there is an impartial judge who is watching everything that you do? Repent. Paul Kashagi, uh, well, Paul Yonggi-cho, actually. Uh, Paul Yonggi-cho is one of the pastors of one of the largest churches in the world in Korea. And you can find things that he said online, which is really interesting. And earlier in his um, kind of pastoral life, he felt called by God uh, to go uh, talk to Japanese people. And he said, I will go anywhere you want me to go, but not Japan. I'll talk to anybody you want me to talk to, but not the Japanese. And that doesn't work uh, with God. 
And so he tried that for a long time, just sort of shoving away that sense that God was moving him in that direction. And he felt family members kind of pushing and pulling him in that direction. He sort of felt called by God in that direction. And then there was this day that he was given a starkly worded invitation to speak to a, a group of pastors, a thousand pastors in Japan. And he felt like he couldn't say no, and he went, and he stood at the front of the room of all of these pastors. And the only words that came out were, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And one of the Japanese pastors stood up and bowed to the ground in just repentance. You should know that the Japanese have not been great to the Korean people for the last several hundred years, particularly in World War II. They'd actually done horrible things to his own family. These were the Ninevites. And another pastor stands up, and these aren't people who committed war crimes. They bow down to the ground. And then a row of pastors. And then all 1,000 pastors stand up and are on the ground in abject repentance. And the message was pretty much over. They lined up in front of him. And each one, one by one, came to him and begged for his forgiveness. God used his enemies to teach him about repentance and the grace of God. Jonah doesn't seem to be listening he doesn't seem to be listening to his own words. See, the amazing thing is true, horrible sinners can read a book like Jonah and go, man, God could forgive anybody. But religious people have a lot of trouble with this book because this book is actually a really strong statement to those who think that they get it and who think that they have nothing to repent from and who don't really see a problem in their own lives. That's the problem for Jonah. He's not listening to his own sermon, short as it is. Uh, Gail Parker and I, the pastor down in Tempe, we were joking a lot about this, that maybe what we should do is just stand up, give an eight-word sermon, and sit down, and just see what happens. Uh, and uh, we joked a lot about it. We came up with a bunch of eight-word sermons, and uh, <laughs> they were really fun. And yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll read you a couple of them. Um, but I think this is actually a worthwhile exercise. So I'm just going to encourage you, uh, as we go into communion, and maybe as the service ends, to really think about an eight-word sermon, exactly eight words. Think about the words. Hmm. Is it okay if I pray for you? Hmm. God loves you more than you love yourself. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Uh, this one will take guts. Uh, the way you treated that employee wasn't right. Separating children from illegal immigrant parents is unjust. The Phoenix Rescue Mission might be the re next step. I think you may have a drug problem. I think you may have a pride problem. I think you may have a blank problem. You cannot escape the cross of Jesus Christ. Christianity is about God's kingdom, not your politics. There is nowhere to hide from God's mercy. People who listen to sermons like that, well, God changes his mind about the destruction he planned to bring on them. 
We see God be incredibly gracious and merciful. And Jonah continues to get chance after chance after chance. And we're going to talk about that a little bit next week. But as we go into communion, write down an eight-word sermon. It might take you all the way through the last song that we sing, but here's what I want you to do when you write that down. First, listen to it. Listen to your own words. And then pray that God would give you an opportunity to share it with somebody. And you may have somebody in mind, and you might hate them. And that's okay. Pray for that person. Pray for that person. You may love them. Your heart might be breaking for them. Pray for that person. Write down an eight-word sermon and see if God doesn't somehow use it in your life and the lives of other people. You cannot escape God's mercy.